Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 487, True Grit. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are well and having something that resembles spring, if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. We had one for a day. It was really fun. I actually went for a run. That's how excited I was to have something that resembled spring, or as the kids were calling it, sprummer, because it was immediately 80 degrees. But beautiful, beautiful. You may have seen a couple of pictures I posted on Instagram from that run. It was so lovely. So that went south. But taxes got finished. Life is good. We have a voicemail from listener Diane that I want to share with you before we get to our chapter. Here we go. Hi, Heather. It's Diane from Boise, Idaho, uh, Shakur on Ravelry. Um, I just called because I had a couple comments. I'm a few episodes behind. I just finished episode 481, and I wanted to share a few things with you. Um, first of all, the art of chromolithography is not completely dead. You may want to take a look at uh, the artist Russell Chatham. Uh, he spent most of his life in Livingston, Montana, which is part of where I grew up, and he makes very detailed lithographs, uh, according to his Wikipedia page, 30 to 40 layers of different colors in a single piece. And when I was in middle school, my class got to go and visit his studio and actually make our own lithographs um, with him showing us the techniques. And it was, it was really awesome. It was a neat project. So there are still people interested in chromolithography, believe it or not. Another thing, as far as the red hair, I think there's more to why Anne hates her red hair and why she says you'd find it hard to be good. Living in the UK for a while showed me that there's a real prejudice there against redheaded people. And um, there's lots of theories about the origins and what that's all about. But I wonder if there wasn't some kind of institutional belief about red hair in Canada at that time, too as far as people being either mean or fiery or poorly behaved. Uh, so when Anne says you'd find it hard to be good if you had red hair too, it makes me wonder if it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, not to mention the aesthetic of the time with the white skin and the dark hair and dark eyes being seen as beautiful. And Anne imagines herself with those qualities because she idolizes them so much. So um, just a couple of things to think about, and I'm sure I'll have more to share Going forward, I'm loving the book so far, and the reader is excellent. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. So I've included a link in the show notes at craftlit.com slash 487, where you can see more about the artist that Diane mentioned. And as far as the red hair thing goes, I've been slowly starting to research more and more about the redheaded issues in history. That will be coming. It is a big topic. But Diane is absolutely onto things here. So 
That'll be coming down the pike. So, Anne, we have what I think is one of the most interesting chapters to date from Anne of Green Gables. I love this chapter. And there are some really fun, kind of old-fashioned terms that are in this chapter. The very first one, which just cracks me up, is a Munster Mass Meeting. M-O-N-S-T-E-R. This was actually a term that was used at the time for big, often political rallies or meetings that were being held because trains could get lots and lots and lots and lots of people all to the same place at the same time for the same event. So those giant meetings or rallies were called monster mass meetings. So you'll hear that early on in the chapter. Then you'll hear a group of people referred to as grits. These were, in Canadian politics, the liberals, as opposed to the Tories or conservatives. I guess it started in 1884 as a term clear grit, which is grit being exactly what you think it is. It's the stuff that gets into the cogs and the gears and provides resistance. See, now it all makes sense. So that's grits. Waterloo Stove is mentioned by name. And if you go to craftlit.com slash 487, you will see why. It is a very specific kind of relatively old-fashioned looking stove. And it was rather old-fashioned at the time too, which is part of why you hear it named. And it's, it's a really interesting looking cast iron stove. So you can go take a look. You can already tell that political parties are going to get mentioned. Women couldn't vote in Canada at the time this book was written. They couldn't vote until 1917. And in that year, it was only mothers, wives, and sisters of active servicemen who were allowed to vote. And once that ball started rolling down the hill, it wasn't too much longer before all women were allowed to vote. Lucy Bond Montgomery had an interesting comment about that that I'm going to read to you. She said, The Ontario government has given suffrage to women, so I may vote yet ere I die. Certainly, I shall never vote along merely party lines, but I am glad it has come. Soon, I think, all the provinces will fall into line, and then we will have dominion suffrage. But I truly doubt whether it will make as much change in things as its advocates hope or its opponents fear. There are a couple of interesting things in there in what she wrote in her journal. One of them is, certainly, I shall never vote along merely party lines. That is a really interesting thing to make a distinction of before even the vote was out there, that that was a topic of discussion, uh, at least among women, of not voting a party ticket, but actually looking at the individuals or the individual topics and voting rationally based on that. She is such an interesting person. I love her. Russets. Russets, in this case, are not potatoes. They are a kind of apple. I have a picture on the show notes of a Roxbury russet. That is probably not exactly the kind of russet that they had on Prince Edward Island, but it's probably close. And people who have been to Prince Edward Island or live there now, please let us know if russet apples are still being grown there. And if so, what type and what do they look like? Croup. Croup, if you have not had children yet, or if you have been lucky enough to have children without hearing them get croup. Croup is a viral upper respiratory infection. It is bad news now. 
and it was really bad news back then. I am now going to play for you some audio of uh, two different children with croup. And if it doesn't make you wince, something is wrong. Here, listen. You can imagine if it's late at night and you're exhausted and your child suddenly starts to sound like this, it would be terrifying, especially if this was your first time, you are going to hear about a case of croup. And when everybody sounds kind of panicky about the whole thing, now you know why. So super scary, but also pretty dangerous because a child, especially a small child, can actually choke on phlegm the amount of phlegm that their body is producing to try and heal the irritated lining of their upper respiratory tract. It's scary, and it could kill. Ipecac. You may have come across syrup of Ipecac before in your life. This is enemetic. It is something that makes the person who is unfortunate enough to have to swallow it, it makes them vomit. It will make sense, I promise. Okay, and here's what I thought was the coolest thing I found for you. You will hear Anne talk about heaping coals of fire on someone's head. This is biblical, probably most famously in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 20. And that, that kind of sounds vengeful, right? Like you, you are doing something nice for somebody, and by doing that, you will be heaping coals of fire on their head. That sounds odd. To me. That didn't sound very Roman slash New Testament-y to me. So I went and I did some research. So way back in biblical times, if your hearth fire went out, you were in trouble and you would need to go to a neighbor or someone nearby and beg, <laughs> beg for some coals, beg for some chunks of burning stuff that you could then take home to yourself, to, to your hearth so that you could survive and cook and eat and stay warm. One easy way of doing that so that you don't burn your legs or something or hands trying to carry something hot, like a if you were, were carrying a bucket, a metal bucket full of coals, that would be very easy to bump your leg against as you were walking with it. That would be a problem. So instead, you would bundle rags or fabric or, or whatever kind of turban-like ish onto your head or use a pillow, something as a protection. You would have a heavy bottomed uh, clay vessel, or if you were really lucky, metal vessel that you could put on top of all of that padding and insulation. And that is where you would carry the coals. Keeps it up out of the way of children, doesn't burn your hands or your legs. You've got all of that protection on top of your head as you carry these things, much easier. So what this actually is referring to is, and, and Paul talks about it in Romans, but it actually does show up in Proverbs. Paul says that if we give food and drink to our enemies, we shall be heaping coals of fire on their heads. That, again, sounds kind of vengy. But if you think about it as you're giving them food, you're giving them drink, and a fire besides. You are then, it seems to me, doing the Jesus thing of loving your neighbor, not 
to make them feel bad and not to make their their face burn with shame, which is one of the things that I I read of a an interpretation of this passage. But because love thine enemy, there is no caveat to that at all. Jesus doesn't give you an out. <laughs> so why should Paul? He doesn't. I thought that was so cool. If you want to see the original part from the Old Testament, it's Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. <sighs> so I thought that was pretty cool. You will hear a reference to taffy. It is unclear if they're talking about taffy, like pulled taffy, or toffee, T-O-F-F-E-E. Either way, I have provided you with recipes. I got a taffy recipe from Fanny Farmer's 1896 cookbook, and I got you a super quick, really easy English toffee recipe, which is so simple. It's like a cup of butter, a cup of sugar, a quarter cup of water, I don't know, maybe a half teaspoon of salt, and you boil that to the hard, maybe a little vanilla, boil that sucker to the hard crack stage, which I think is 300 degrees, and then you pour that into a greased Pyrex pan, take chocolate chips or Hershey bars, anything, and put them on top while it's still hot. They will melt from the heat of the cooked candy. And then you can sprinkle, you know, whatever you want on top, nuts or whatever. That's it. And then you let it cool off, pull it out of the pan by inverting it when it's cooled because the butter on the bottom makes it so easy to get out. And then, you know, crack it and then eat it, all of it because it's that good. So those recipes are linked to at craftlit.com slash 487. And, and the last note is, if in this chapter you think Anne is quoting poetry, she is. It's pretty obscure stuff that I really doubt you would re have read by now. But you can definitely tell that she's quoting poetry when she does. So have fun. Here we go. Let's listen to chapter 17 read for us by Kim Zuckert. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Kim Zuckert. Chapter 18, Anne to the Rescue. All things great are wound up with all things little. At first glance, it might not seem that the decision of a certain Canadian premier to include Prince Edward Island in a political tour could have much or anything to do with the fortunes of little Anne Shirley at Green Gables. But it had. It was a January the premier came to address his loyal supporters and such of his non-supporters as chose to be present at the monster mass meeting held in Charlottetown. Most of the Avonlea people were on Premier's side of politics, hence on the night of the meeting, nearly all the men and a goodly proportion of the women had gone to town thirty miles away. Mrs. Rachel Lynde had gone too. Mrs. Rachel Lynde was a red-hot politician and couldn't have believed that the political rally could be carried through without her, although she was on the opposite side of politics. So she went to town and took her husband, Thomas would be useful in looking after the horse, and Marilla Cuthbert with her. Marilla had a sneaking interest in politics herself, and as she thought it might be her only chance to see a real live premiere, she promptly took it, leaving Anne and Matthew to keep house until her return the following day. Hence, while Marilla and Mrs. Rachel were enjoying themselves hugely at the mass meeting, Anne and Matthew had the cheerful kitchen at Green Gables all to themselves. A bright fire was glowing in the old-fashioned Waterloo stove, 
and blue-white frost crystals were shining on the window panes. Matthew nodded over a farmer's advocate on the sofa, and Anne at the table studied her lessons with grim determination, despite sundry wistful glances at the clock shelf, where lay a new book that Jane Andrews had lent her that day. Jane had assured her that it was warranted to produce any number of thrills, or words to that effect, and Anne's fingers tingled to reach out for it. But that would mean Gilbert Blythe's triumph on the morrow. Anne turned her back on the clock shelf and tried to imagine it wasn't there. Matthew, did you ever study geometry when you went to school? Well, now, no, I didn't, said Matthew, coming out of his doze with a start. I wish you had, sighed Anne, because then you'd be able to sympathize with me. You can't sympathize properly if you've never studied it. It is casting a cloud over my whole life. I'm such a dunce at it, Matthew. Well, now, I dunno, said Matthew soothingly. I guess you're all right at anything. Mr. Phillips told me last week in Blair's store at Carmody that you was the smartest scholar in school and was making rapid progress. Rapid progress was his very words. There's them as runs down Teddy Phillips and says he ain't much of a teacher, but I guess he's all right. Matthew would have thought anyone who praised Anne was all right. I'm sure I'd get on better with geometry if only he wouldn't change the letters, complained Anne. I learned the proposition off by heart, and then he draws it on the blackboard and puts different letters from what are in the book, and I get all mixed up. I don't think a teacher should take such a mean advantage, do you? We're studying agriculture now, and I found out at last what makes the roads red. It's a great comfort. I wonder how Marilla and Mrs. Lynde are enjoying themselves. Mrs. Lynde says Canada is going to the dogs the way things are being run in Ottawa, and that it's an awful warning to the electors. She said if women were allowed to vote, we would soon see a blessed change. What way do you vote, Matthew? Conservative, said Matthew promptly. To vote conservative was part of Matthew's religion. Then I'm conservative, too said Anne decidedly. I'm glad because Gil... because some of the boys in school are grits. I guess Mr. Phillips is a grit too because Prissy Andrews' father is one, and Ruby Gillis says that when a man is courting he always has to agree with the girl's mother in religion and her father in politics. Is that true, Matthew? Well, now I don't know, said Matthew. Did you ever go courting, Matthew? Well, now no, I don't know as I ever did said Matthew, who had certainly never thought of such a thing in his whole existence. Anne reflected with her chin in her hands. It must be rather interesting, don't you think, Matthew? Ruby Gillis says when she grows up, she's going to have ever so many bows on the string and have them all crazy about her. But I think that would be too exciting. I'd rather have just one in his right mind. But Ruby Gillis knows a great deal about such matters because she has so many big sisters, and Mrs. Lynde says the Gillis girls have gone off like hotcakes. Mr. Phillips goes up to see Prissy Andrews nearly every evening. He says it is to help her with her lessons. But Miranda Sloan is studying for Queens, too, and I should think she needed help a lot more than Prissy because she's ever so much stupider, but he never goes to help her in the evenings at all. There are a great many things in this world that I can't understand very well, Matthew. Well, now I do know as I comprehend them all myself, acknowledged Matthew. Well, I suppose I must finish up my lessons. I won't allow myself to open that new book Jane lent me until I'm through, but it's a terrible temptation, Matthew. Even when I turn my back on it, I can see it there just as plain. Jane said she cried herself sick over it. I love a book that makes me cry. 
but I think I'll carry that book into the sitting room and lock it in the jam closet and give you the key. And you must not give it to me, Matthew, until my lessons are done, not even if I implore you on my bended knees. It's all very well to say resist temptation, but it's ever so much easier to resist if you can't get the key. And then shall I run down the cellar and get some russets, Matthew? Wouldn't you like some russets? Well, now I don't know but what I would, said Matthew, who never ate russets, but knew Anne's weakness for them. Just as Anne emerged triumphantly from the cellar with her plateful of russets, came the sound of flying footsteps on the icy board walk outside, and the next moment the kitchen door was flung open, and in rushed Diana Barry, white-faced and breathless, with a shawl wrapped hastily around her head. Anne promptly let go of her candle and plate in her surprise, and plate, candle, and apples crashed together down the cellar ladder and were found at the bottom embedded in melted grease the next day by Marilla, who gathered them up and thanked mercy the house hadn't been set on fire. "'Whatever is the matter, Diana?' cried Anne. "'Has your mother relented at last?' "'Oh, Anne, do come quick!' implored Diana nervously. "'Minnie Mae's awful sick. She's got croup, young Mary Joe said, and father and mother are away to town, and there's nobody to go to for the doctor. Minnie Mae's awful bad, and young Mary Joe doesn't know what to do, and Oh, Anne, I'm so scared. Matthew, without a word, reached out for cap and coat, slipped past Diana, and away into the darkness of the yard. He's gone to harness the sorrel mare to go to Carmody for the doctor, said Anne, who was hurrying on hood and jacket. I know it as well as if he'd said so. Matthew and I are such kindred spirits, I can read his thoughts without words at all. I don't believe he'll find the doctor at Carmody, sobbed Diana. I know that Dr. Blair went to town, and I guess Dr. Spencer would go too. Young Mary Jo never saw anybody with croup, but Mrs. Lynde is away. Oh, Anne! Don't cry, Di, said Anne cheerily. I know exactly what to do for croup. You forget that Mrs. Hammond had twins three times. When you look after three pairs of twins, you naturally get a lot of experience. They all had croup regularly. Just wait till I get the Ipecac bottle. You mayn't have any at your house. Come on now. The two little girls hastened out, hand in hand, and hurried through Lover's Lane and across the crusted fields beyond, for the snow was too deep to go by the shorter woodway. Anne, though sincerely sorry for Minnie May, was far from being insensible to the romance of the situation and to the sweetness of once more sharing that romance with a kindred spirit. The night was clear and frosty, all ebony of shadow and silver of snowy slope, Big stars were shining over the silent fields. Here and there the dark-pointed firs stood up, with snow powdering their branches and the wind whistling through them. Anne thought it was truly delightful to go skimming through all this mystery and loveliness with your bosom friend, who had been so long estranged. Minnie May, aged three, was really very sick. She lay on the kitchen sofa, feverish and restless, while her hoarse breathing could be heard all over the house. Young Mary Jo, a buxom, broad-faced French girl from the creek, whom Mrs. Barry had engaged to stay with the children during her absence, was helpless and bewildered, quite incapable of thinking what to do or doing it if she thought of it. Anne went to work with skill and promptness. Minnie May has croup all right. She's pretty bad, but I've seen them worse. First we must have lots of hot water. I declare, Diana, there isn't more than a cupful in the kettle. There, I filled it up, and Mary Jo, you may put some wood in the stove. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but it seems to me you might have thought of this before if you'd any imagination. 
Now I'll undress Minnie May and put her to bed, and you try to find some soft flannel cloths, Diana. I'm going to give her a dose of Ipecac first of all. Minnie May did not take kindly to the Ipecac, but Anne had not brought up three pairs of twins for nothing. Down that Ipecac went, not once, but many times during the long, anxious night when the two little girls worked patiently over the suffering Minnie May, and young Mary Jo, honestly anxious to do all she could, kept up a roaring fire and heated more water than would have been needed for a hospital of croupy babies. It was three o'clock when Matthew came with a doctor, for he had been obliged to go all the way to Spencervale for one. But the pressing need for assistance was past. Minnie May was much better and was sleeping soundly. "'I was awful near giving up in despair,' explained Anne. "'She got worse and worse until she was sicker than ever the Hammond twins were, even the last pair. I actually thought she was going to choke to death. I gave her every drop of Ipecac in that bottle, and when the last dose went down, I said to myself— not to Diana or young Mary Jo, because I didn't want to worry them any more than they were worried. But I had to say it to myself just to relieve my feelings. This is the last lingering hope, and I fear tis a vain one. But in about three minutes she coughed up the phlegm and began to get better right away. You must just imagine my relief, doctor, because I can't express it in words. You know there are some things that cannot be expressed in words. Yes, I know, nodded the doctor. He looked at Anne as if he were thinking some things about her that couldn't be expressed in words. Later on, he expressed them to Mr. and Mrs. Barry. That little red-headed girl they have over at Cuthbert's is as smart as they make em. I tell you, she saved that baby's life, for it would have been too late by the time I got there. She seems to have a skill and presence of mind perfectly wonderful in a child of her age. I never saw anything like the eyes of her when she was explaining the case to me. Anne had gone home in the wonderful white-frosted winter morning, heavy-eyed from loss of sleep, but still talking unweariedly to Matthew as they crossed the long white field and walked under the glittering fairy arch of the Lover's Lane maples. Oh, Matthew, isn't it a wonderful morning? The world looks like something God had just imagined for his own pleasure, doesn't it? Those trees look as if I could blow them away with a breath. Poof! I'm so glad I live in a world where there are white frosts, aren't you? And I'm so glad Mrs. Hammond had three pairs of twins after all. If she hadn't, I mightn't have known what to do for Minnie May. I'm real sorry I was ever cross with Mrs. Hammond for having twins. But, oh, Matthew, I'm so sleepy. I can't go to school. I just know I couldn't keep my eyes open and I'd be so stupid. But I hate to stay home for guilt. Some of the others will get head of the class, and it's so hard to get up again. Although, of course, the harder it is, the more satisfaction you have when you do get up, haven't you? Well, now I guess you'll manage all right, said Matthew, looking at Anne's white little face and the dark shadows under her eyes. You just go right to bed and have a good sleep. I'll do all the chores. Anne accordingly went to bed and slept so long and soundly that it was well on in the white and rosy winter afternoon when she awoke and descended to the kitchen where Marilla, who had arrived home in the meantime, was sitting knitting. "'Oh, did you see the premiere?' exclaimed Anne at once. "'What did he look like, Marilla?' "'Well, he never got to be premier on account of his looks,' said Marilla. "'Such a nose as that man had. "'But he can speak. I was proud of being conservative.' 
Rachel Lynde, of course, being a liberal, had no use for him. Your dinner is in the oven, Anne, and you can get yourself some blue plum preserve out of the pantry. I guess you're hungry. Matthew's been telling me about last night. I must say it was fortunate you knew what to do. I wouldn't have had any idea myself, for I never saw a case of croup. There, now, never mind talking till you've had your dinner. I can tell by the look of you that you're just full up with speeches, but they'll keep. Marilla had something to tell Anne, but she did not tell it just then, for she knew if she did, Anne's consequent excitement would lift her clear out of the region of such material matters as appetite or dinner. Not until Anne had finished her saucer of blue plums did Marilla say, Mrs. Barry was here this afternoon, Anne. She wanted to see you, but I wouldn't wake you up. She said you saved Minnie May's life, and she's very sorry she acted as she did in that affair of the current wine. She says she knows now you didn't mean to set Diana drunk, and she hopes you'll forgive her and be good friends with Diana again. You're to go over this evening, if you like, for Diana can't stir outside the door on account of a bad cold she got last night. Now, Anne Shirley, for pity's sake, don't fly up into the air. The warning seemed not unnecessary, so uplifted and aerial was Anne's expression and attitude as she sprang to her feet, her face irritated with the flame of her spirit. Oh, Marilla, can I go right now without washing my dishes? I'll wash them when I come back, but I cannot tie myself down to anything so unromantic as dishwashing at this thrilling moment. Yes, yes, run along, said Marilla indulgently. Anne Shirley, are you crazy? Come back this instant and put something on you. Might as well call to the wind. She's gone without a cap or wrap. Look at her, tearing through the orchard with her hair streaming. It'll be a mercy if she doesn't catch her death of cold. Anne came dancing home in the purple winter twilight across the snowy places. Afar in the southwest was the great shimmering pearl-like sparkle of an evening star in a sky that was pale golden an ethereal rose over gleaming white spaces and dark glens of spruce. The tinkles of sleigh bells among the snowy hills came like elfin chimes through the frosty air, but their music was not sweeter than the song in Anne's heart and on her lips. You see before you a perfectly happy person, Marilla, she announced. I'm perfectly happy, yes, in spite of my red hair. Just at present, I have a soul above red hair. Mrs. Barry kissed me and cried and said she was so sorry and she could never repay me. I felt fearfully embarrassed, Marilla, but I just said as politely as I could, I have no hard feelings for you, Mrs. Barry. I assure you once for all that I did not mean to intoxicate Diana and henceforth I shall cover the past with the mantle of oblivion. That was a pretty dignified way of speaking, wasn't it, Marilla? I felt that I was heaping coals of fire on Mrs. Barry's head. And Diana and I had a lovely afternoon. Diana showed me a new fancy crochet stitch her aunt over at Carmody taught her. Not a soul in Avonlea knows it but us, and we pledged a solemn vow never to reveal it to anyone else. Diana gave me a beautiful card with a wreath of roses on it and a verse of poetry. If you love me as I love you, nothing but death can part us two. And that is true, Marilla. We're going to ask Mr. Phillips to let us sit together in school again, and Gertie Pye can go with Minnie Andrews. We had an elegant tea. Mrs. Barry had the... We had an elegant tea. Mrs. Barry had the very best china set out, Marilla, just as if I was real company. I can't tell you what a thrill it gave me. Nobody ever used their very best china on my account before. And we had fruitcake and pound cake and donuts and two kinds of preserves, Marilla. 
and Mrs. Barry asked me if I took tea and said, Paul, why don't you pass the biscuits to Anne? It must be lovely to be grown up, Marilla, when just being treated as if you were is so nice. I don't know about that, said Marilla with a brief sigh. Well, anyway, when I'm grown up, said Anne decidedly, I'm always going to talk to little girls as if they were too, and I'll never laugh when they use big words. I know from sorrowful experience how that hurts one's feelings. After tea, Diana and I made taffy. The taffy wasn't very good, I suppose because neither Diana nor I had ever made any before. Diana left me to stir it while she buttered the plates, and I forgot and let it burn, and then when we set it out on the platform to cool, the cat walked over one plate, and that had to be thrown away. But the making of it was splendid fun. Then when I came home, Mrs. Barry asked me to come over as often as I could, and Diana stood at the window and threw kisses to me all the way down to Lover's Lane. I assure you, Marilla, that I feel like praying tonight, and I'm going to think out a special brand new prayer in honor of the occasion. End of chapter 18. So yay and the hero. Nice work, kiddo. That's, I guess, I guess working those... Three sets of twins really did do some good. That was incredible. You have to remember how little this kid is, too. She is something else. And Marilla makes the crack about the uh, prime minister. <laughs> the premier, he was also called the first minister of the crown. In this case, the prime minister was most likely Sir John A. Macdonald. He was prime minister two different times for, for two different stretches, separated by several years. But he was a conservative prime minister. He did visit Prince Edward Island in 1890. And he did, thank you, Marilla, have a really big nose. If you see caricatures of him from the newspapers at the time, that is one of the defining features you will see. I also loved, and I'm sure we can all empathize with Anne in her, her book temptation moment while she's trying to do her geometry. And I totally get why a kid like Anne would say that the problem isn't the math. The problem is that he keeps changing the letters. Because for a kid like Anne, of course it's the letters she's going to pay attention to. She's, she's the book girl. It makes perfect sense to me. But I, I think I've talked about it before. There was that study that was done, I don't know how many years ago now, where they had the, the little kids and they put the marshmallows on the table and said, all right, I have to leave and, and get something for you. Sit, sit here and wait. And if you don't eat that marshmallow by the time I get back, I will give you two marshmallows. And then the adult would leave the room and they had a camera on the kid and the kids would sit there and squirm and talk to themselves, talk to the marshmallow. <laughs> Please don't make me eat you. I don't want to eat you. But what they found was that the delayed gratification, the children who were able to withstand the temptation and delay their gratification, tended to have an easier time later in life. At least that was what I remember from reading that study a thousand years ago. And it made me think of poor Anne sitting there looking at the book, seeing the book, hearing the book call to her, but having to finish her geometry. I also thought, back to Mrs. Barry, that it was kind of cool that Anne, in the best way, heaped coals of fire on her head by continuing to be nice and generous. I also thought, going back to uh, Mrs. Barry having her, her sphere of what she is good at and comfortable with, that for her, the importance of pulling out the very best china is huge. And because Anne is who she is, it is not lost on her. I also thought it was 
pretty important that one of Anne's takeaways from that entire thing was to talk to girls like they were grown-ups, to treat them with that same respect, and not laugh at them, especially not for using big words. There's a lot of talk about bullying and, and just being a mean girl or a jerk, and part of that is laughing at girls or, or making comments about their appearance, which any human child is susceptible to feeling hurt by. But girls, as we know, have lots and lots of layers of problems when, when that happens. I think it's important that for Anne, yes, when Rachel Lind made fun of the way she looked, she went off. That's not what she's focusing on here. Laughing at a girl for sounding smart or for trying to be smart is in so many ways more devastating and dangerous than laughing at a kid because they've got red hair or a big nose or whatever. Lucy Maud Montgomery was an interesting woman. I also, on the, the adult side of things, I loved Marilla having the cojones to say to Anne, you know, thank God it was you because I wouldn't have known what to do. I never had a child. I wouldn't know what to do for croup. Baby would have died. That's a pretty massive thing for an adult to say to such a little kid. And really, really cool that she didn't bite her tongue. And, you know, I don't want to make her, her head swell or something like that. No, no, no. Marilla, like, fesses up right there. And I loved that. I also love that Anne was perfectly happy in spite of her red hair. <laughs> Even though and that she'd been so inspired that she was going to have to go and make a new prayer. Love that girl. All right. And on that happy note, have a great week. I will be flying to Germany and back between now and when you hear from me again. So I may be a little tired next week. I also may not make it <laughs> to the microphone next week. So if I evaporate, you'll know that that's what happened. All right. You take care. Have a great one. I will talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page, or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>